0: The, uh, the profanity bothers you. It has no nobility. These are slum kids. I, I was a slum kid. Everybody talks like that.
1: They do not? What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and 10 pounds of that bitchly cow corn? And, and the bank do I tell Mrs. Bollinger, oh, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your christing money? There! Look there! See what you made me do!
0: Welcome to the Twin Geek Cast. This is Calvin. I'm here with David. Hi, I'm David. And today we'll be talking about uh, the Stephen King adaptation of Misery, directed by Ron Reiner, and we'll be lo- Rob 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 Reiner. It's Rob Reiner. Excuse me. <laughs> and we'll be looking at the weekend box office and uh, discussing our thoughts on the latest films of the week. Uh, starting the weekend box office at number 11 this week, we have The Old Man and the Gun. Um, it's a Robert Redford vehicle.
1: Uh, it's the last Robert Redford film. Yeah, yeah,
0: he's announced that it's his last role as an actor on screen. And uh, I tried to go to it early in the week, and the screening didn't work out. The projector was broken. We were at the AMC, so, you know, nobody's trained as a projectionist because everything's digital. Um That's the downside of going and trying to see uh, artistic film is that uh, maybe the theater's not up to the task. Um,
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, it's a shame it couldn't have been something, you know, generic. I guess it breaks down. It has to be the the great film that we're looking forward to, the finale for Robert Redford.
0: Yeah, it could have been Goosebumps 2 or, uh, you (laughs) know, uh, it could have been any other film. But uh, not like this uh, momentous uh, moment, last moment of his career. So uh instead I went to uh, night school that evening, but um also
1: some saw... oh, that's a <laughs> sorry that's about a it, that's a close you can get to that's you know kind of like night school is close to the same thing as old man and the gun, right? Right,
0: they're basically the same movie. <laughs> um the next day I did end up going to Old Man and the Gun, really enjoyed it. It has a cool crime caper feel, uh laid back feeling of the eighties. Um they don't make very many like this anymore.
1: That's great. Uh, I think you also told me it was shot on film, right? It is. That's also a rarity for nowadays. You know, everything's moving to digital.
0: And it has a pretty laid-back, uh, old-school feeling about this over-the-hill retirement gang who uh, goes and uh, robs banks with a smile. You know, Robert Redford, it's not even about a gun. Like, uh, he's a man that may have a gun in his back pocket. He doesn't show it off, but he uh, kind of pulls it out. easily. Like, this is the kind of transaction I want to make. And then, you know, hints at a gun and gives him a nice smile and uh, always leaves people with a positive impression. It's about a guy who escaped prison about 18 times. Uh, his last one, a uh, famed escape from San Quentin. Hmm. Um, pretty interesting guy, and I think it made a really fun final picture. Gave him a chance to show up. Um, after that, we have a uh, number 10, Mid 90s, from Jonah Hill his uh, debut as a director
1: you know it's interesting that because i've seen it's kind of getting middling reviews and he's not the only one recently to come out with uh, as an actor to come into the director role now i know paul dano just had his directorial debut with wildlife as well which i've also heard mixed things about but i'm glad to see that they're both getting out and you know trying new things
0: you have to look at jonah hill's path too like he's already for a comedic actor he's already worked with apatow and scorsese and uh you know, he's been around, uh, Oscar nominated people. And, uh, this is kind of, I mean, he has a great path to get in there. He's worked with some of the best directors in the game. So, uh, I think it showed that he's learned a lot from them. It had really good blocking, uh, especially for a skateboarding movie. It was very well choreographed. Uh, everyone was placed the right way. I was impressed by it, but, uh, also a little bit hesitant to give it a full recommendation. Mm-hmm.
1: It it seems like it's, well, it's probably like a film that came out in the mid-90s. Very enjoyable, but, you know, not anything profound.
0: Yeah, it's not very profound. You know, it's about skateboarding culture and uh, and kind of feeling left out. It's more about, like, the male bonding uh, that happens in the skateboarding group. That these kids are trying to live up to the ideals of the alpha male uh you know, like sleeping with women, they don't even want to just because uh, that looks good in their friend group. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a lot of posturing and not that interesting unless you uh, already lived that in the 90s.
1: Well, I was going to ask, uh, having lived through the 90s as well, do you think that it, you know, communicated any of that very well?
0: I think it was pretty cool that everything had a little bit of a, a double-edged sword that uh, you'd have like the SNES controller and F-Zero playing in the background, then. Twenty minutes later he'd be trying to strangle himself with the controller, uh, trying to asphyxiate himself. Um there's a lot of abuse in his life. It's not really a very pretty nostalgia, but it worked for me in a significant
1: way. Well, that's good to hear, at least it's kind of in the background. I know that's one of my like more bigger peeves with what you know they're doing with Captain Marvel. The trailer just shows it opens up and it's a big blockbuster sign there and it's like, ah, I see. Now now I know we're in the nineties. Yeah,
0: there is a mention where his mom's like, we're going to Blockbuster tonight, and he's like, uh, no, fuck it, I'm going skateboarding with the bros. <laughs> you know. But then there's another scene where they're all out drinking, and Briza comes on with some liquid swords, and I'm like, getting chills, thinking like, oh, this was my life.
1: <laughs> so I suppose for anyone who did grow up in the 90s like we did, it might be good to check out just for that you know, nostalgic rush.
0: Yeah, I think if you were born around then, I'd go, if you're a millennial or an older generation, you could probably skip that. We At number eight, we got Night School, which we talked about a little bit before. I read a Tiffany Haddish and Kevin Hart's books from last year. It's interesting because they have the same kind of come up in the comedy circuits. They just worked small stages and then got promoted. They didn't have to go the SNL route and uh, the way that the old 70s comedy stars had to go. So they both have a very similar acting style and very good chemistry together.
1: That's good that it un- ended up coming out pretty good for you and you enjoyed it because, you know, it looks disposable. It looks like everything else. But, you know, that's not bad as long as you have a good time.
0: Well, I think that it, part of it for me was that I got some of the audience from Old Man and the Gun. So just like seeing the, the old ladies next to me like guffawing every time that uh, Kevin Hart would make a bad joke. <laughs> um, like he'd put like pubic hairs on a spoon or something to get free meal at a restaurant. And these ladies would be like way overreacting. So I think that made the movie for me.
1: I mean, I, I suppose you can't blame it a little bit. That is a bit grotesque, but they were also <laughs> expecting a, a Robert Redford film and God knows that wouldn't happen there.
0: So I think that's like the only thing I like about night school is that I got those uh, strange reactions to it. After that, we got a number seven Smallfoot, which is hanging in there. Um, uh, I'm still waiting on video on demand. Um, but mm-hmm. before that, we got First Man, which is doing pretty well still. Uh,
1: yeah, it's good that uh, Chazelle's films are still staying in the top 10 like that. He's a great director from what we've seen so far, and I want to see him succeed. So hopefully another week we'll see him there- still there.
0: And I feel like it has a It has a strong human element to it, Uh, same as the other ones. It's about men discovering their full potential in a way. And in this one, more of the potential of humanity. But it also personalizes it in the context of uh, Neil Armstrong's family. So it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Before that, we have The Hate You Give, which I still haven't gotten out to. You have any thoughts on that?
1: Uh, Not particularly. You know, I haven't heard a whole lot of buzz about it. You know, no one's really lining up to go see it, but it's not like, you know, I'm hearing any bad things about it, too. Right. So,
0: yeah, I haven't gotten the buzz I expected out of it. I feel like there are a lot of uh, black films this year that are kind of overperforming above what that one can. So, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's going to be mid charter. It's okay.
1: Mm -hmm. it's great that we're getting a lot more of those you know i mean obviously we can't offer the proper perspective on it but just to see more diversity in the cinema is something that's been long overdue and even if it's not all going to be smash successes at least it's all out there that's fantastic
0: yeah we've already had three picks from the box office with pretty significant african-american characters uh there's definitely a market now um at Number five, we got Hunter Killer, which I know next to nothing about. I know it's a submarine movie um, about contacting uh, Russians. um has Gary Oldman in it. That's the full extent of my knowledge. That's
1: cool. I think Hunter Killer is also the name of an anime, and I hear about that a lot. So I got a little confused when I first heard about it. I'm like, oh, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that they made another anime movie. But, I mean, when I, when I did see that it's not the case, I'm like, oh, okay.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, it might be... Um, For the better, if that were true. It just looks like generic (laughs) military stuff. Um, Speaking of generic, at number four, we got Goosebumps 2, Haunted Halloween.
1: Yay! Happy Halloween!
0: Yeah, we're recording on Halloween today, and uh, I don't think anyone's going to go see that movie anyway. No. Um, (laughs) Instead, maybe you could go to number three, Venom. Uh, Really Tom Hardy going completely unchained and uh he's been messing up the box office for the last month um i don't think anyone expected how it's performed it's still raking in um you know over 10 million just uh, after a month of its run being decreased in theaters it's still hanging in the top three
1: yeah, there's no way that Sony is not going to approve a million sequels to this now. We're getting the Venom Cinematic Universe for better or worse and, you know, it's surprising that Venom did so great, but I definitely think it's more so because of Tom Hardy than anyone else involved. And unless they can bag think, some more talent like that. <laughs> like that.
0: I think everyone else in some sense is working against Tom Hardy or that he's operating on a completely different plane, uh, He's kind of in the zone here while everyone else is kind of just uh, very confused about what he's doing around them.
1: Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll definitely be interesting to see if the next uh, Sony Venemy movie does even like half as well as this does. I don't know, maybe there's a market for it.
0: I think there's a huge market um, going buy what comes after the trailers. We don't want to spoil it, but uh, stay in there. It has mm-hmm. some... Yeah, some pretty fun stuff. Uh, An
1: interesting uh, actor there too, from what I understand.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, a sequel could be a real bang up thing, but I don't want to talk about uh, too much what happens after. Um, before that, we have uh, *Stars Born* at number two. Um, always a bridesmaid, uh, never a bride. It'll always be number two. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry to *Stars Born* fans, but it's just not that good. <laughs>
1: I guess, but I mean, it's getting lots of buzz. People seem to be loving it a lot, kind of in the same vein that people really went to Greatest Showman as well. People love them some music movies, and I don't oh, know, yeah. It's it sounding like it's going to get some Oscar buzz, I think. I hear about it a lot.
0: I do have a feeling about it that it's a cultural moment, like the song The Shallow will be charting for the next the rest of the year, right? So
1: That's got to get a nomination for sure, right? I mean, oh, what yeah. else is going to compete against it?
0: Other than, like, uh, like all the stars from the Black Panther, I can't see what's going to win a Song of the Year other than that. Yeah, um,
1: I, can't, I can't think of, rest of it early right now.
0: I won't be surprised if a month from now this is still in, like, the top seven of our charts. I don't see anything knocking it completely out. At number one, we still have Halloween. Have you come around on it?
1: Now, you know, I kind of feel largely the same, especially having watched the original again last night and realizing how they lifted even more than I had originally realized. It's, it's and very... We were talking
0: a little bit yeah. about how that's... Um, sometimes that's a crutch for a movie that, uh, if it can't create its own nostalgia, it has to be... Um, it's kind of beholden to the past, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure what they create that's new. I mean, there's that doctor there... Um, we did the whole podcast on it last week, if you want more thoughts.
1: Right. Well, they set up an interesting idea, but I don't think they followed through on it. And it's because I think Halloween, the, the original at least, was better at what it did for almost like the wrong reasons. What people latch onto in the movie is not necessarily what makes it great.
0: And I think there's like this thing that wasn't completely obvious, even to everyone involved about Halloween. And since then, there's been this immense pressure, like, uh, okay, this is a known success, we have to hit these marks, Mm -hmm. but at that time, it was completely unknown, like, you had Black Christmas, and not a lot else that was like it, so John Carpenter was able to just create, and I don't feel like they create anymore.
1: Right, I think the issue with it is that... John Carpenter made the original film and it's clearly this it's very simple in what it is and it's about Michael Myers breaking out and killing people and everyone's like I love that I want to do that again. But it doesn't work if you do it again. you got to do something different, which is why the new Halloween film, I think, was so much stronger based on the trailers from this aspect of tackling it from Laurie's trauma of it. But they don't go for that all the way. They just, as soon as they got Michael out of, you know, the prison, they go right back into making a Michael Myers film, and it just becomes derivative.
0: And you totally think it's going to be something different. I mean, it's sold that way, and um and, well, they plant a little the seeds bit of it. of
1: it too you know yeah. like they've got the ideas there and i'm like i can see it i can see the better movie there and it just breaks my heart to see that
0: and laurie's just gone a little bit too long for her to have that impact that she really needed to
1: mm-hmm. definitely i wish it i wish it was better but yeah i still feel the same
0: yeah absolutely um but i think it's gonna hold on there in the charts at least uh for the next week and uh Next week, we should also have Suspiria um, charting a little bit higher. We've got it at number 23 this week. So that'll be interesting to see how that does outside Halloween.
1: Right. I mean, it's only the limited release right now, right? It hasn't even gotten to wide yet. So hopefully it'll be... Yeah, hopefully it'll do good. If, you know, between Halloween and then Suspiria here, maybe every, you know, classic uh, horror movie is going to get a nice big old reboot. Hopefully they don't touch the ones they shouldn't, but...
0: I think that'll be the fun thing about Halloween is that it, it'll it bring back uh, some of the slasher genre and that we'll start getting some revisions that actually need to happen.
1: Uh, our pick for this week for to film to talk about is going to be uh, Rob Reiner's 1990 horror thriller Misery. And, uh, you know, we picked this film because not only is it a good transitionary one from Halloween to, you know, the November time frame, the more wintry aesthetic to it, but it's also just one of my favorite horror films ever. I love this film.
0: And it's very high on my list as well. As far as Stephen King adaptations go, I'd put it at the top of my list. It's, um, as you say, very fun, wintry, seasonal um, uh suspense thriller with the I think it has a lot of heart to it as well
1: mm-hmm. well there's a lot of elements going on to it because it's definitely part thriller definitely part horror but one of the big things as well with it is that's all psychological you know Rob Reiner watched every single Alfred Hitchcock film in preparation for making the film because he didn't know anything about you know kind of making these kinds of movies before and you can really see that in the film
0: and this was made in uh came out in 1990 and that's an interesting thing about that era of filmmaking is that every director would just get their one horror movie uh you know he's coming off of uh what was he doing a princess bride before this
1: yeah what, what was it when harry met sally was like right before this and he did stand by me which is another king adaptation but it's not horror in any way whatsoever
0: and then king kind of entrusted him with uh, doing misery right after that because he was so successful with stand by me
1: Yeah, I mean, Stand By Me was the only adaptation of his work up until that point that Stephen King actively liked. You know, he infamously hated Stanley Kubrick's take on The Shining, and, uh, you know, Stand By Me was actually very close to the material, and it's also a great film. I love it just as much.
0: And I think that's very confusing because, I mean, I'd play Shining as, you know, the second best King adaptation after this one.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's hard to think of that. Some people will probably, you know, come at us with torches and pitchforks for saying this is better than The Shining in any way. But you know, The Shining is definitely a special beast all its own. It's not a a proper adaptation by any means, but what Kubrick does with it is fantastic.
0: Yeah, I think the thing to think about is at least the author agrees with us that this is the right ad- adaptation of his work. Um, and uh, the thing King would always say about this is that. It was like a metaphor for his addiction, which, you know, I could relate to on at least a very personal level. Right, Um, because
1: you have that past. Well, I guess that's a a good point we should bring up as well, is that the actual plot of the film is um, very simple, but amazing in its execution of it it's about a writer paul sheldon played by james can and he you know is a very famous author kind of like king and you see a lot of that similarity to him there and he works in you know this cabin up somewhere i'm not sure is it colorado i think maybe I think anyway so. yeah so he gets into a car accident getting on the way out he rolls off a hill and you know the snow drift and is like completely like kind of destroyed <laughs> I guess it's a weird way of saying it, but yeah. His legs are busted up as all hell. You know, he's got bruises all over his face and everything, but he's saved. You know, he's saved from death by his, you know, number one fan. It's almost like a coincidence that she happened to be there, Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates. And things kind of divulge into more threatening territory as he has to depend on her, but at the same time, her true craziness kind of starts to come out in various outbursts.
0: And I think they have one of my favorite relationships in film. I think... uh... When you start looking at film, it's just uh, every movie is basically two people having a conversation and when you get to the heart of what this one is, that whole conversation is laced with so much tension and so much uh, implied dread. Uh, mm-hmm. Kathy Bates is really incredible as uh, as uh, his, his biggest fan. You know, he's just selling himself out, basically prostituting his work, doing uh, historical romance novels. So his audience is much different than who he is as a person. And right. she expects this of him that he's going to come across like this romance writer that's going to woo her.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's very almost autobiographical in that sense because King has also been more or less pigeonholed into Horror, you know, for his entire career, and if anyone, you know, anyone's very uh, malicious towards him, if he wants to do anything well else, and I think Reiner really connected with that because he came from a comedic background, acting in stuff like All in the Family, and then directing stuff like Spinal Tap and When Harry, Harry Met Sally and Princess Bride, and so for him to try and make that foray into more serious dramatic territory, you know, it was very hard for him to do so.
0: I think it is a film about like a tour theory and being kind of the victim of your own creation in some sense. That uh that, you know, what we write it it never reaches the right audience and sometimes what gets popular isn't the thing we ever wanted to write. Like a you know, I don't know what King's most personal work is. Maybe like Dark Tower series seems to be more of his like a personal statement about um, you know, a legacy that he wanted to create, but Only the horror stuff really uh, picks up in the movies.
1: Right. Um, But definitely you can see as well that in his character here, at least in the beginning of the film, uh, Paul Sheldon is trying to break away from that. His last novel is about to be published for the Misery series, and it's, you know, intending to kill her off for good. And the last novel that he's just finished writing, that he's leaving the lodge, is a completely new thing. It's about, you know, slum kids, which he grew up in. It's a very, very personal novel for him. And you know, it all just backfires when he's faced with Annie Wilkes.
0: And it's kind of like, a, like the analogy to addiction is like, you always think that you could have your last drug and then, and then it pulls you back in every time you, you, you think you could finish or that you could make a willing choice to walk away. But um, addiction in some sense, uh, it it's more of a spiritual disease that you're, you're not capable of uh, choosing anymore. Uh, It basically chooses um, the lifestyle for you.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely an interesting angle to look at. I think it's more, uh, that theme is more prevalent in the book itself, but definitely you can still see the influence there and how the duality of Annie's nature and how she is both, you know, torturous and, you know, toxic to Paul, but at the same time she's a nurse and she's, you know, Bringing him back to you know health, she's you know nursing him back, and it's it kind of works in that same way the drugs kind of do, and how I imagine any way most you know addicts kind of feel, and that is a dependency on them still that you need, despite how awful it is for you.
0: And that's the thing about that is that they're they found their solution already. Uh, A lot of people go their whole lives without finding a solution, but then with someone like that, that's found a, a drug that works for them. They found a way out of a whatever pain they have. So um, at the same time, it, it's still hurting him. I mean, he's completely incapacitated for most mm-hmm. of the movie.
1: Oh, I think that's really like the best aspect of the movie. And what makes me most terrified watching it is that Paul Sheldon is completely stuck there is no way out they go out of their way in the movie to show you how royally screwed his is, he is his legs are fucked up beyond all reason he's entirely dependent on annie to even just get him out of the bed how the hell is he supposed to get out of this place if he can't even move
0: and i think that's what scares me most even coming back to it like you know at the end of my addiction i had to learn how to walk again and realizing that drugs could do that to you that that they can incapacitate incapacitate you and just like looking at stephen king's future you know that he um he almost foreshadowed his own uh, near-death experience
1: yeah that's actually really interesting how real life ends up paralleling like that with his uh famous or infamous um you know accident where he got hit by the guy on the side of the road as he was walking
0: uh yeah it's almost like he's been haunted by the story that he wrote it's a uh, it makes Misery that much of a more haunting novel and a movie. Right, um, just how
1: much it connects with him personally before and after its publication is very interesting.
0: I think there are some pretty significant differences with the book. I think that, uh, you know, Annie Wilkes has developed a little bit differently. Um, yeah, more mm-hmm. of a terrifying metaphorical symbol. And some of the things that happen are a little bit more outlandish in the book, a little bit harder what? to capture.
1: One of the things I uh, found out when I was watching the audio commentary for it again, because I love to do that for a lot of my favorite stuff, but um, Rob Reiner said how they focused less on the horrific element things that happened in the book more so and made it more of a psychological thriller, like I said, with that kind of Hitchcock influence there. So the whole movie became more of a, a cat and mouse game of Paul trying to fight back and find his way out, you know, while still preserving the kind of fantasy uh, that will keep him alive in Annie's eyes.
0: I think that works well in a Hitchcockian way that it's kind of a battle of wits and, um, they're, you know, it's, it's a mental game and it's, um, and it feels literary. they um, uh, what, how would you characterize their relationship?
1: The relationship is very much so a a fake one in many ways. You know, Annie sees Paul as this, you know, almost kind of divine figure in many ways. She puts him up on a pedestal entirely, but she also feels, uh, you know, like she owns him in a way. Like, you know, she... You know, if anything about him does not fit her image, then it's unacceptable. And on the other end, Paul is very much faking his way through the relationship with Annie. You know, at times he's trying to be upfront with her about things and whatnot, but whenever he is, she tends to overreact. So he caters to that personality more so, and he often says whatever she wants to hear so that he won't be butchered before he gets out. (laughs) One of the things I remember particularly... I think that... Oh, go ahead.
0: (laughs) I think that's interesting in a sense about how writers have to cater to their fans. Uh, the way that Paul has to talk to Annie is like a, the same way a writer would have to um, uh, write to to a market. Um, they have to change their work and, you know, he had to sell out, become this uh, romantic writer. Um, but that's not who he is.
1: Well, there's an interesting sequence uh, somewhat earlier on where, you know, she's trying to force him to burn his manuscript and he's trying to weasel his way out of it by, you know, kind of faking and saying, oh, well, there's already plenty of other copies of it, my publisher has, and whatnot, and, you know, but she's not falling for it necessarily, but while she's telling him all these things about how she knows him and whatnot, she's kind of pacing around the bed while she's motioning with her hands, holding this can of gasoline, and and it's just all flying on de paul as she's talking and you could feel the tension of that like this woman will burn him alive if he doesn't do what you know she says so he just kind of has to cater to it and do it anyway and you know grit his teeth through it it's horrific to watch it's like you know you can see it's like watching him you know kill his baby essentially you know burning his book here
0: i think that's one of the moments where it feels like Okay, there's no getting out. She's not nursing him back to health. Uh, This isn't a temporary trap anymore. It's like the biggest fear as a writer is uh, being held captive to write and then being forced to burn your work anyway because Mm -hmm. it doesn't agree with the public imagination.
1: So then he's forced to write a new novel to bring back the misery character... And, you know, so, and that's another interesting thing about it as well, is that you got to consider how long Paul has been missing for. In this time, he has to write an entirely new book, you know, before he can even attempt to escape the clutches of Annie.
0: And uh, most of his time is pretty much incapacitated. Um, he can't move around very much, uh, and he's stationed at a typewriter for most of his visit.
1: Mm-hmm. I think they do a great job, though, of showing how resourceful and smart Paul's character is. He does a lot of things to kind of, like I said, you know, cater to Andy's interests so that he can get away with doing some stuff behind her back. Um, you know, there's great sequences of him. Like, as soon as that book burning part happens, I think I'm pretty sure it's the moment afterwards, the pills that he's been being fed by her so that his pain goes away. He hides the first couple under the matches right after that moment. So, you know, Paul's such a trooper in that sense, in that despite just going through this horrific traumatic thing of burning his, you know, book passion there, he's immediately on, you know, the offensive trying to figure out how he's going to get out of this.
0: And I think that's uh, some of the greatest tensions when, uh, when Annie goes to the store to get the uh, specific uh, typing paper that he needs. Um, mm mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's one of the biggest scenes is he tries to plot his escape.
1: Yep, that's a fantastic sequence. Definitely one of the best in it. And it shows how great uh, Reiner was at building tension there. You know, they they set up early, like right before she leaves, the bobby pin on the floor that he's going to use to, you know, kind of get his way out of the room with the lock. And from there, you know, the whole sequence just kind of keeps building and building as you see. And what I also love about that sequence in every moment is that they set up, In all of these things throughout, you see... That's the first time you see the picture of Liberace, which comes Mm -hmm. up later in the film. You see the photo album there as well, which is a big, you know, bit of information we get later in the film. That's where the penguin comes into play, the little porcelain penguin that he knocks over. That kind of gives him a way that he's been out of the room. But in all all that, you know, he gets to explore the house more. That's the first time he's out of the house at all. Or the room, rather.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a a big part of our context for... um... The situation of the film is that we get environmental context through items. And um, our friend Graham wrote a nice article on inserts in the film. Uh, Those really stand out here because uh, they signify um, very specific uh, messages, messaging throughout the
1: film. Well, what he talked about as well is that how all of the insert shots in it all add up to something and the film is really fantastic at you know doing that setup payoff element the very opening shot of the film sets up three key items that all come to play in the climax and are crucial to defeating Annie in the end
0: I just think that's the brilliance of its editing is that everything pieces together in a novelistic way that uh, it it is like a Hitchcock movie in that sense and that the inserts are always important and they show up in the right order And then every insert has a payoff. Uh, There's no item that's there just to be there.
1: Yep, everything is important in some way or another. Even, um, you know, I know the the role of Misery the Pig that Annie owns is not as big as it is in the book. But it does come back in a way in the end, you know, her role there. Even if it's not exactly as you know it's presented in the first place
0: yeah i feel like i feel like in the book maybe the uh something i don't remember exactly but i feel like something more uh gritty happens with the pig i'm, and, I'm uh, sure <laughs> i'm almost positive of it and uh and one of the funny things about the movie is the pigs credited as uh misery playing itself
1: right that does any with the pig as well it's a funny thing. yeah those, those those fun credits are always you know kind of just need to pick up on when you're looking through But yeah, uh, so when he, I guess back to the uh, roaming around the house bit, you know, he, it's a real uh, big turning point in the film as well, because Paul gets the advantage there as he grabs like the two packs of meds there. So he, you know, at that moment, he doesn't have to wait anymore to get any, you know, more of the pills from Annie. He's just ready to enact his plan. And that's the
0: great thing is that that tension sets up uh, following scenes as well. Uh, There's not a scene wasted in the movie.
1: Mm hmm. The, the setup to that is then when he asks, uh, him to or asks her to join him for dinner. You know he already has his plan in motion, and you know what he's gonna do because you know the idea with the pills there. He's got this packet then full of all the pills. He's gonna drug Annie. He's gonna get the hell out of there, and you know they set it up so perfectly in that he asks her to go get the candles, and so when she's gone, he puts it all in the wine for her wine there, mixes it in. Oh, and I guess another great detail about that as well is that when he first starts to plan to take the pills, he checks it first, like he gives it a taste, and he smells it Mm -hmm. to make sure there's no odor or, you know, uh, any taste to it. So that way, and it's a small detail that helps cover up any kind of plot hole later.
0: Yeah, I think that's the brilliance of it, is that scene is filled with so many small details They're, You know, they're sitting there before his shrine that she's built, a shrine to all of his biggest work. uh, you know, just an expression of her, uh, for her out of control fandom. It's just so well set and by far my favorite, uh, sequence in the whole film. It's a, has such mounting tension. Everything's been built to this point and it's coming to a boil. And then Annie comes back and, and you wonder about the wine exactly what's going to happen.
1: Although well, they're about to take sips from it, they're about to toast to misery and whatnot, they say. And before they have a chance to, she, you know, reaches over to light the candle, I think, or whatever, and knocks over the wine glass, and it just spills everywhere. She pours herself a new one, and it's like, oh my god, everything it was building up to was wasted. Like, the look on James' can face in that scene is absolutely (laughs) priceless in an awful way. Like, you just feel so bad. You're like, what's gonna happen now?
0: The best thing is he toasts to misery, and then she spills over the drugged wine, and and then she refills it uh, without the drugs, and then she gives her own toast to his misery. It's just such a beautiful turn there.
1: Uh, It's just like, and, you know, I think in some instances, if that wasn't done right, it would feel like so empty, like, oh, great. Well, now where is the movie going? You know, because everything you've been building up to is not there, but it actually works out fantastically still. And it just comes across, it's heartbreaking to watch, but, you know, in a good way, I really enjoy how awful that feels.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it is an awful feeling and it feels gross, but uh, everything pays off at that point. That's that's like a, a big climax in the movie. And I guess we debated the other day whether or not she
1: intentionally spilled it. Mm-hmm. I know you definitely felt like she did, which would add, you know, another element of her intentional malice to it, but I don't think that's necessarily within Annie's character. You know, she has been very confrontational with Paul up until any of that point, And she ends up bringing attention to him. Like I said, with the penguin later, as well as the knife that he ends up stealing from the kitchen. So I think it would be more in her nature to say something about it. And also I think it just helps to add to the if It's just an entirely accidental thing. It just makes it feel more, um, you know, I guess worse. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, uh, What I'd add about that is that in the book, she ends up punishing him for uh, spilling the wine, but uh, that her book character is also very different. Um, She has maybe more redeeming attributes. or I'd just say she has more general awareness of what Paul is doing and uh, uh, plays more of a guard to his behavior.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the interesting aspects that's a change to her character as well here is the fact that she does seem less evil as an entity you know she seems like a more real albeit psychotic person and again that element of realism helps to at least make me more scared of things going on I'm not the kind of person who's afraid of boogeymen or scary draculas or whatever you know if it's all fantasy that's all great stuff but I'm not going to be you know staying up at night wondering if it's going to happen it's the real stuff that really gets to me
0: yeah, I think the grounding in this is especially what freaks me out. There's nothing in this that that takes you out of the story. Like, they changed the book uh, from, you know, cutting off his legs to just, like, plowing them with a sledgehammer, which is almost worse.
1: Oh, I think that's absolutely worse. It's a much better change there, at least on a visual level. If you just saw Annie cutting off the foot there, you almost can't you know, empathize with that feeling. You don't know what that is, kind of at all. But you've twisted your ankle in some kind of way to at least begin to emulate that that feeling. And they do such a good oh, job yeah. in that sequence. I remember I watched the feature on uh, Greg Nicotero, the makeups effect artist, talking about it. You know, he does a bunch of stuff for The Walking Dead now as well. He's a great uh, effects guy. But like they talked about how they did it with the rubber cast and. You know, she breaks both his legs, but you only see it the once, and it looks wicked the way it does does it because the foot just goes all the way around that block, and it's just <sighs> like, oh my god! It,
0: it's it, it's dramatically painful too, and it's you could feel it, uh, and I don't think you could feel it the same way getting right. cut off.
1: But the interesting thing is that you don't see her cut the second foot. You know, they right. just they just make the sound effect again, and they show James Cane's face. And I got to right, yeah. say, this this is a good opportunity to say so is that James Can is underrated in this role here because he has to act his ass off just to keep up with uh, Kathy Bates here, and also just to act all that pain out. I believe that pain every time he Look, shows I, it.
0: I know we we all know Godfather is good, right? But I think this is a his most expressive role, um, he shows significant pain and especially restraint. Uh, this role requires so much restraint. Uh, there aren't many leading roles in Hollywood where you're incapacitated in a wheelchair for most of the movie.
1: Yeah, what, you got like Rear Window and this. That's probably it. Right. That's actually another interesting connection. This is very Hitchcocky and kind of like Rear Window. But it, I think it's definitely, unlike Rear Window, it's definitely more focused on his, you know, handicapped state.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like King probably pulled something of that from Hitchcock and, I mean, Reiner uh, focuses the direction toward re- rear window. Uh, there, there is always uh, something going on with the windows in the movie. That's, that's another a, thing.
1: That's an interesting aspect as well, you know, I found as well, is that, you know, the the setting of it and everything is all very secluded and you got this house away. And as is with most Hollywood productions, generally everything is filmed on a set and you got a backdrop outside. But there are some things where there's very interaction going on. You see a helicopter fly by. You see Annie walking up to the house through the window and whatnot. And none of that stuff is filled on, filmed on a set. It's all filmed on location out in the wilderness. And they just built, like, the facade of the interior of the house. And you can't tell the difference. If I no, didn't tell you no, that, you wouldn't, you
0: wouldn't know. No, it's staged like a play, essentially. And it, it works that way in a Hitchcockian sense, also.
1: I think that's interesting as well. I know there was a, like a, you know, they do various ro- revivals of you know movies and stuff on Broadway and whatnot. I remember hearing once that Bruce Willis was playing the uh, the James Conn role there of Paul Sheldon. And that oh, is that me right? As, yeah, it struck me as odd, and, and I was like, "All right," but you know, I like seeing Bruce Willis. I wish I could have seen that. But absolutely,
0: I might have to look into that after we're done here.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh I I guess that also just goes back into the casting of it as well. We already talked about like James Conn there, but we also got to talk about Kathy Bates. And everyone knows how fantastic she is, and it. I think she's one of like the first people to win an Oscar for uh, a horror role. You know,
0: I think that's which, right. Um, and it's not, significant because uh, Kathy Bates, you know, she's not winning for looks. Um, you know, she's she's a middle-aged uh, female actress that's winning for their performance alone.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what I was trying to tie back to, and to as well. I think it was I can't remember exactly if it was the stage production of misery or something else, but they wanted to cast Julia Roberts in that role at one point. Oh and Stephen God. King was just like, Yeah, no, because that's not who Annie was. She said that Annie's, you know, kind of a beefier character. She needs to be able to throw a man around a room, she <laughs> yeah. said. Yeah, and you have
0: to be able to believe it because she's like picking him up off the wheelchair, placing him in bed, you know. She's a significant force in the movie.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing, is that her intimidating, you know, physique is just as much a necessary part of her character as any other facet. You gotta believe that she probably would kick his ass in a fight, and almost does by the end of the film facet to her character that's important but i guess the other big thing with annie as we kind of already touched on as well is that she needs that perfect balance of very kind nice homeliness she's got those christian values as well that stephen king likes to touch on a lot as well as the manic you know drastic freak out elements and that able to go back and forth and not knowing what it's going to be is it, crucial to establishing the fear of her character
0: and I think that Stephen King loves to play with these kind of characters that, you know, they say odd things. Uh, she kind of has her own invented language that's, a, that's really fun to listen to.
1: Yeah, all of the various cockadoodies and yeah. you know, friggin' whatnot. It's all very... Um... You know, an interesting asset to her, for a character. It shows almost a kind of uh, underdeveloped facet to her personality. And not not in a writing way, but in a character way. Like she's very, you know, a stunted growth, essentially. She's yeah. very stuck with those moral values. She can't handle foul language. And so she has to substitute in these ridiculous words. You know, these words that in any other context would make you chuckle or laugh. But they actually, they're they very intimidating coming for her. Because the implication there is that she doesn't, you know have the, the mental capacity, anything past that.
0: Yeah, almost her inability to deal with the darkness or the use of uh, of more significant slurs kind of renders her as a more evil character because there's something innocent and childlike about it, but then there's also this, uh, this meanness about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it connects into that idea of people with a lack of awareness who have immense power. It's a very terrifying thing knowing that someone can make grand decisions and you know make things happen while being completely oblivious to the outcome or the damage that it can cause. So I guess one other thing I want to talk about while I'm thinking about that is there you know especially in the the context of the language one of my favorite scenes in it is when she's talking about the rocket man serial and this is the discussion when you know paul has to redo the beginning of the new misery book because it's not right and the way in which they film this is she's you know begins to escalate in the conversation to get you know more frustrated and frustrating building up to it the camera is pushing in on her intensely and it's in this great wide angle lens And I think that wide-angle lenses utilized so many great times throughout the movie to really, like, get you in her face, and it's even more intimidating and scary.
0: Absolutely. And the cinematography is just on point the entire time, the way everything is framed.
1: It's, you know, as again, it kind of said a lot with uh, the insert shots already. You know, Rob Reiner really did his homework on trying to understand what it is to be a thriller. But also, um, you know, just Barry Sonnenfeld was a was a great cinematographer this is the last thing he did before he started becoming a director of his own and he worked a lot with the Cohen brothers before this like he shot uh blood simple and racing arizona and uh i think he did no maybe he didn't do miller's crossing i think that was roger deakins at that point but anyway um there's another great shot i remember from early on in the film that i remember rob uh, reiner discussing how sonnenfeld kind of created it it's during that scene where uh annie's racing back to you know, meet Paul, you know, they're having that kind of chase back there. And the sh- the sheriff's on the side of the road after not quite seeing Paul's car there. And the camera is kind of looking at them going down. It's obviously mounted on a car. And as soon as they pass the sheriff on the road, the camera keeps turning and you see they're in Andy's car. It's all in one shot. It's really great, very fluid shot. And there's lots of great shots like that throughout the film. The cinematography is something that definitely goes under talked about in this film
0: it definitely stands out as um uh, as one of the better shot king adaptations uh how do you how do you feel like you'd rank it among king's
1: work? uh you know man i'm so biased on this since this is actually one of my favorite films it's you know like my favorite horror film i think it just barely doesn't crack my top 5 but so i would put it personally at the top but that's not uh, <laughs> that's not what everyone would do most people are going to put the shining but you know I don't know, there's there's a lot of Stephen King adaptations I love as well. Shawshank and Green Mile, Stand By Me, they're all fantastic. I think one of
0: the fun things about this was that we're both pretty much in agreement on that. That Misery is so much fun, it's such a different take on Mm -hmm. the usual Stephen King that we get. That I think we'd both place it near the top.
1: Yeah, well I think what's interesting about it as well is like what there's... I think this, Stand By Me, and Shawshank are some of the only big popular adaptations that don't have any supernatural element to them whatsoever.
0: Yeah, um, I feel like we were both fans of this and then maybe Green Mile.
1: Yeah, I love Green Mile. That was one of my favorite films kind of growing up as well. You know, one of the great things about I guess not to get in too long of a tangent, but I love the pacing of that film. It's more than three hours, but you'd never know if you were checking the time.
0: So, uh, definitive Twin Geeks ranking, we have Misery and Green Mile as the all-time best Stephen King. Don't at me. Uh <laughs> Sorry to Shining and Kubrick, uh, just didn't make our list.
1: Yeah, ne- next time, we'll try next year.
0: <laughs> yeah, next year. Um.
1: So I guess uh, the other thing about Misery that we should talk about as well is how much it escalates by the end, because it gets seriously violent in the climax there.
0: Oh, it's gritty. Mm-hmm.
1: it's you know there's so much blood going around and just absolute like intense violence i think a lot of the sound design goes in as well one of my favorites being when paul sheldon hits her over the head with the typewriter which is another great moment that's set up when you see him kind of lifting the typewriter in between writing you know paragraphs or whatever he's obviously preparing for this
0: and that's that's one of the fun things about the fact that he used typewriters that it mattered the entire time that his writing was strength training for him to be able to lift it and smash over the head with it as -hmm. well as constantly lifting the typewriter up
1: right well it kind of works as a double thing like he is working to regain his strength from his dilapidated state as well as you know practicing to kind of make sure he's got the movement right for when he uh you know finally tries to defeat Annie
0: and it's like the tool that created the thing she was obsessed with uh, ended up killing her uh it
1: there's a thematic element is there as well. You can see the subtext. It's all really great. And I kind of wish that's the kill they went with instead of the, the misery pig statuette, you know, that they kind of do, they do that fake out thing. It's not the worst fake out kill that I've seen in these kind of horror movies, but it is just slightly cheap. Like, I'm kind of like, man, you had a a really great thing there. This one's just a little weaker, but I'll, I'll take it. I love it still.
0: Then, then I'm not entirely sure about the ending. I feel like it, I feel like it does something we were talking about with the new Halloween that, uh, that horror films r- rarely get to, that you have to live on with this trauma. Uh, people don't just survive these fucked up experiences. They have to go live their lives afterward, and it follows them.
1: Mm-hmm. That's definitely an interesting aspect they leave the note on. They, they leave it on this kind of slight scare moment. It's not like a jumpy kind of thing or whatever, but it's just kind of this haunting idea that this thing will follow with him forever. You know, his agent kind of almost asks him to relive th- this moment mm-hmm. you know by by potentially rewriting it oh oh god i just realized we didn't even mention who the agent is it, you know did you realize that's lauren bacall as the agent yeah. in this film fucking lauren bacall you know screen legend of the 1940s and 50s married to humphrey bogart
0: <laughs> right yeah it's fantastic
1: it's it's an amazing little thing. I remember because you know Reiner again. He said like you know when casting, they had a hard time casting the film in some parts, like especially James Cann's part. They they wanted like Robert Redford or Warren Beatty mm-hmm. originally, who both would have done great. But I think James Cann really nails it still. But you know like his agent whoever called him up and said, Hey, would you consider Lauren Bacall for this part? And he's like, Hell yes, I would consider Lauren Bacall. Are you kidding?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's the only person that could be there once you have that name down. Uh, yeah, I feel like I feel like as far as supporting. Um, Richard Farnsworth does a really good job as the local sheriff. Uh, oh, he's
1: he's so great. Like, he adds so much <laughs> charm to this role. He does. You know, like,
0: he brings such a human element from the outside, like, a laying in bed with his wife trying to read about, uh, you know, he's but, finding all these numbers. false
1: red herrings. Right. Their relationship is actually really great. And if I remember right... Uh, uh, let's see here. What's her name? Frances uh, Sternhagen. She Her character's not actually in the book, but she adds so much to it, and they have those interactions together. They're very kind of like cutesy, bickery old couple, and it's great. Yeah. I love them in there, and they add so much, especially because he kind of has to drive the plot forward, you know, in investigating things and finding out about, you know, Paul's disappearance. And when it's funny. Finds... Yeah. Yeah. And he's fun. I mean, that's And that's an. Another interesting element of this and why I want to see more comedy kind of directors take on these horror elements because when they do it right and they interject the various moments of kind of comedic uh, substance to it, it adds that sense of relief so that you can drive up the tension again. You know, there's lots of comedic moments in Misery that really make it. One of my favorites is, you know, when he – Paul Sheldon's first sitting down to write the book – you know, he just sits at the typewriter freshly, second he lets out a big gasp, and you hear him typing away a bit, type, 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 and then it cuts to what he wrote, and it just says fuck, like over and over again, just fuck, 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 and it's hilarious, <laughs> and, then, and then he just kind of tr- tr- throws away again, and I was like, you know what, that's that's humorous, I get that, you know, that's kind of how I would feel in this situation, just like, fuck, what do I do?
0: And there's there's this sense with it that uh, a little bit more critical theory, but that a comedy director can come and make a good horror because they have the same um, components of tension that that the tension uh, a laugh requires to be taken properly on screen is about the same as something like a jump scare or a
1: psychological... Uh, thriller so right and with a joke as well as in horror is that there's a setup and payoff when you do it right you know and they both have that and as long as you can figure out the mechanics of that you should be able to do both well and we've seen you know horror, uh, comedy directors transition well into horror what was just last year with get out you know uh you know i won't say as much about halloween here with david gordon green yeah. you know, based on my opinion but it's successful and people tend to like it otherwise so it works and the comedy sometimes does work in that movie
0: I feel like those are the two most critically misunderstood genres. And I feel like the comedy director um, comedy often comes from some kind of pain or uh, comedians are often the darkest people. So I'm never very surprised when they're very good at horror, And I think we find out. I think we I I think we start finding out who the real comedians are.
1: Mm -hmm. Comedy and tragedy, if they go hand in hand in that aspect. And, you know, I hope that more of them will be kind of take cues from like this where Reiner did but he did it right in that he did his research kind of first and I get the sense with you know some other directors in that same way but I don't know I've never seen it as well handled as Reiner because you would never consider this comedic in any sense there's just moments of levity throughout moments of charm and you know that as well I think that's as well, is that every character you're endeared by in the film, especially like we said with Richard Farnsworth, who's probably the most lighthearted, sweet, kind of old character you could imagine. So when his uh, time comes at the end of the film, when Annie gets to him, it's just awful. It's even more heartbreaking than the wine was. Yeah.
0: For next week's show, uh, while we ran out of time, next week we'll do a full rundown of uh, all of the CW shows currently on TV. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I, don't, I don't think so <laughs> oh
0: you don't okay well no. maybe next time but
1: uh <laughs> yeah i had a great time talking about misery uh love that movie we'll talk about more of our favorites in the future for sure
0: uh we both just watched uh legend together uh this morning so uh, that that might be uh coming up in a next couple week shows uh, what do we got next
1: week I think we're we're deciding to talk about The Other Side of the Wind, Orson Welles' new film that nobody's talking about. Or I guess it's, it's not new, but final film. It's finally coming around. I am so hyped for this. I'm ready to see it already. Coming out in two days. Are you, are you excited, man?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it'll be a phenomenal podcast. So I'm looking forward.
1: We'll definitely have a lot to talk about there. Can't wait to get to it. But I think we're pretty good for now.
0: All right. Take care you dirty bird how could you she can't be dead misery chastain cannot be dead any in 1871 women often died in childbirth but a spirit is the important thing and misery spirit is still alive i don't
1: want her spirit i want her and you
0: her. no i didn't who did No one. She she died. She just slipped away.
1: Slipped away. Slipped away. She didn't just slip away. You did it. 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 You You murdered my misery. Annie. Annie. I thought you were good, Paul. But you're not good. You're just another lying old dirty birdie.